Right. So a few of you have been around my house, um, uh, mostly for the men's Bible study, but a, a few people came to the barbecue I had uh, a couple of couple of years ago. Now it's it's now been three years since I've been in the house, and I had that barbecue the first year, and I I'm really sad that I can't have haven't had the barbecue the last couple of years. I've I've done it at the the, the start of my summer holidays and uh, the last two years, obviously this year and last year, uh, we've been in lockdown. Um, but I have to confess, I still haven't put up uh, most of my framed pictures. Um, I suppose I, I still see my stay here in, in Malaysia as a little bit temporary and I don't want to kind of get too comfortable. I think I've already become too comfortable and bought too many bits of furniture, etc. But imagine instead coming to my house and finding, uh, walking in, you take off your shoes because I'm Asian after all, take off your shoes and you walk in and you look down and your, your feet are quite cold because the, the floor is made of gold and the walls are also gold and covered in beautifully ornate carvings. Everywhere you look, and then there's wooden paneling, you know, kind of wooden paneling, expensive wooden paneling, all are also covered in wooden carvings. And, and all these little kind of angel decorations everywhere. It would be really quite strange, wouldn't it? Um, and probably quite a little bit, yeah. I mean, I've seen a few decorations in uh, SSF over here where I've just uh, and, and other furniture stores where I've just thought that's that's pretty disgusting uh, and gold, gold golden ornaments and golden kind of furniture and golden flooring and walls would certainly be out of fashion you see we we shy away from these things that are opulent, uh, that kind of are obvious show, uh, showings of wealth. You do see people kind of driving around in maybe a, a golden Ferrari. And, and you, it, for me, it makes me cringe. I don't know about you, but it makes me cringe because it's, it's a real kind of obvious display of wealth. And we kind of shy away from that. We, we, we think it's quite gross to be showing off that wealth. But we, we see here in, in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, we see uh, that the temple, the, certainly the inside of the temple was, uh, was, had golden floors. Um, but rather than shying away from it, we should see it in a different light. We should see it as uh, God deserving our best and him being worthy. So this opulence and this ostentation, uh, ostentatious display of, of riches, it should be somehow fitting or is somehow fitting because God is worthy of this display of wealth uh, and, um, and riches. Now, I'm not going to read out the two chapters, um, but you're probably wondering what can we learn from these two chapters that are filled with these dimensions. And unless you're someone who reads the IKEA catalog, it won't, uh, in fact, even though, you know, I quite like looking through the IKEA catalog, but unless you're kind of 
really interested in the, the, the back section, which has all the kind of the measurements. And I, I don't really look at that, that part. Uh, I accept when I'm trying to measure something for my house. It's, it's not really going to be something that's that interesting to me. But um, 2 Timothy 3.16, one of my uh, teenage memory verses, says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's the NIV version, which I learned. We do read normally the ESV now, uh, and most of the rest of the passage will, uh, passages will be ESV. But this is the, the, the memory verse that I learned as a teenager. Um, and so that we see it's all scripture. So all of these measurements, all of the details, all of the names and the genealogies and lists of the Old Testament laws, you've got to ask yourself, how is this useful? How is this relevant for the 21st century? Uh, and I also remember once being told that every passage in the Bible can be used to teach uh, about uh, teach the gospel. And you'd probably be right to wonder how, as we read through these chapters, both last week and this week, uh, they kind of can teach the gospel. Uh, and, and in some ways, this is where I miss Eric. Uh, I remember that he gave some great sermons on the measurements of the tabernacle and how they pointed to God um, and looked at the, those topics in a completely different way from the way that I would. Uh, and uh, But I, I'm no architectural expert. Uh, so I'm going to look at a few points that we can take from these two chapters. Um, uh, but before we do that, uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this passage, these two chapters, uh, so that we can see more about you, learn more about you, and glorify you, and uh, hopefully be changed. Lord, we pray that your spirit is working in us as we gather to uh, challenge us and to change us so that we can be a, a greater witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So before we go on, I'm going to read this uh, section of John, um, which does point to Jesus. Um, and this is going to frame this, and we're going to come back to this at the end. So Jesus cleanses the temple. The, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to the temple. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, as I said, I will come back to this passage. 
because the connection is not altogether clear why we've got all of these measurements from the Old Testament, uh, the chapters, uh, 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7. Uh, but hopefully that will become clearer as we speak through this chapter. And I kind of want to work a little bit backwards through the chapter. So firstly, I want to look at the recreation of uh, this. This is uh, the recreation of I don't know which way this will be for you guys. I think it's down that way. Um, the, the temple are built by Solomon. And I want to see whether you can spot what uh what is unusual about the temple and i'm going to give you a little moment to think about it now if you can't spot what's unusual about this temple i want you to be think think about the most beautiful and the most impressive uh buildings in the world okay so i've got a few here so here are here is the taj mahal in india and some of you will have also been, which is quite close to us, uh, to Angkor Wat uh, in Siem Reap in, in Cambodia. And then there's in Moscow, we have uh, St. Basil's Cathedral. And in Barcelona, uh, in Spain, we've got the Sagradas Familia. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong, Sagrada Familia. I think there are lots of, so many beautiful buildings. I, I particularly love, uh, love castles. In Germany, there are some absolutely stunning castles. Um, and I love to walk around the, uh, the city of London and see the architecture and, and view all the architecture there. But can anyone see what the obvious difference between these things are? If anyone wants to tell me, they just shut it out. Unmute yourself and shut it out. Uh, we'll put it in the chat if you're a little bit too shy. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to give you any points or I don't know, maybe I should give some sweeties for people who, who, who give me the right answer. Anyone got an answer? Okay. If you, no one's got an answer. Windows. Not a bad idea. So there are some windows. If you have a look up here, there are some windows in the temple. They are very small. Okay. But that is not the difference I was looking for, because some of these really don't have that many windows. There's a tiny little windows up here uh, and you yeah, kind of uh, slits uh, for this. Um, right. Anyone else? No? OK. So the difference here is if we look at the temple, have a look at the outside of the temple. It's not really very impressive, is it? It's kind of, I mean, yes, we've got this gold pillar in the front, but otherwise the outside of the temple is very plain. And if we look at these beautiful buildings, and I'm sure the inside, uh, inside of these are also impressive, but it is the outside of these buildings that is really the most impressive part. Well, as the temple, the ornaments, the decorations, the beauty is on the inside. And if we look in chapter seven at the close, uh, closer measurements of the decor in the temple, we notice that the, the measurements, and again, I'm no expert on this, but they are meant to denote perfection. And the decor is supposed, and the ornaments 
and the carvings of the angels are supposed to show us just how special God's dwelling place is. It's not for showing off to the outside world. The temple is not about showing off to the outside world. And this is an important lesson for us. We're going to go to this should be very familiar passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? This is talking about sexual immorality and sexual temptation. Uh, that's the context of this uh, and why we shouldn't. The, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It's not our outward beauty that God cares about. If our bodies are a temple, it is the inside that God is more concerned about. The fruit of the spirit is not about how nice your hair is or how fit your body is. How well toned your legs and your arms and your abs and your six pack, or my, in my case, my one pack. God cares only very little about that because obviously we want to keep healthy but it is the inside those fruit of the spirit that that he cares about god is changing us and molding us to perfection within so that's my first point very very brief point our bodies are god's temple and we are being made perfect within and for those of you who are so concerned and worried, and you can see this world is concerned and worried about the exterior, know that God is not. God is more worried about your interior. Now, the second thing I want to highlight uh, is, um, is something that I talked about two weeks ago. Um, despite being the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon was far from perfect he is he is not the uh the savior that we were waiting for now i'm gonna jump uh here to the start of chapter seven we get the narrative stops about the building of the temple and we're given this short paragraph this uh, little information about solomon's palace and we we've got i've got a diagram here down here um the, the, the temple took seven years to build. Now, now that's impressive. Uh, we'd probably complain if, if we were kind of, if the government was building a something for seven years. But we see that Solomon's palace took 13 years to build. And it's about one and a half times as long, three times wider and just as high. And then he also builds the Hall of Pillars, which uh, is the same size as his palace and the Hall of Thrones, and then another hall for his Egyptian wife, the, the, the daughter of the Pharaoh. Now, the Bible is silent as to any judgment on this, these buildings, but it does include this passage as kind of, uh, it's almost kind of the, the brevity of it almost says something in itself. And we see later the comparisons, uh, this, the, this is a comparison, 
Um, and we know that uh, Solomon's fall, uh, failing comes later on in, in 1 Kings from his wife. So this is, this is a warning. This is a warning. We see more signs of Solomon's weakness. You see, we have, we all have wisdom. Of course, we can do with more wisdom, but we all have wisdom. But the fact that we are selfish and sinful and weak means that we're given to temptation and ignoring that wisdom. This is why, again, I've, I've said this before, as Christians, we have no right to take a holier than thou attitude. We have no right to lord our godliness over non-Christians. It's not that we might be better than them. We, we might be more godly than them. But the fact that we know what is wrong, that we have been given the Bible, that we have been given the Holy Spirit in us to guide us to know what is right and wrong, that we are given wisdom and yet we still sin and we still fail, means that we have no right to judge others like that that we have no right to think of ourselves as better because we have wisdom and yet we choose to ignore it and so we see these signs of solomon's weakness and that kind of brings me on to my uh, my next and final point which is going to be fleshed out a bit more so a little background now uh, Craig, uh, Pastor Craig, last week uh, reminded us that King David was not given the honor of building the temple because his hands were too covered in blood. Now, there is a great scene from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I would encourage you to read the whole of that chapter at some point because it's a great chapter. Uh, having done the overview of the Bible a few times, that is something that really, again, one of the things that sticks out to me. Because David, after conquering all his enemies, he sits back and he looks around. He says, I've conquered all my enemies and I live in a house of cedar. I've got all this wealth. And yet God dwells in a temple. Let me build him a great house. You can see why God describes David as a man after his own heart. And we see time and time again, as you read through David, uh, David's life, how much of a passion he has for God. And if we had had the time, I would have gone back to look at David before going on to yeah, 1 Kings. Uh, but hopefully, yeah, if you can read through that, that, that would be great. Nathaniel says, go ahead. But that night, God comes to David and he says, you will not build my house. You will not build me a house. I will build you a house in which he's referring to David's legacy and eventually God's eternal king from the line of David. And I'm going to pick it up at verse 12. When, the, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, at this point, we might be thinking it's talking about Solomon. He shall build a house of my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, we know that that's not Solomon. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Well, again, that's not Solomon. We know who this is talking about. When he commits iniquity, 
I think there's a slight you know, trans, uh, translation thing here because Jesus didn't commit iniquity, but he was certainly punished for iniquity. That's it. That's sin. I will discipline him with the rod of men. Now, that's an interesting phrase. The rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put out, uh, away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, I'm going to come back to our passage and have a look at chapter 6, verse 11, and see whether you can, again, see whether you can spot the difference. This is keeping you guys awake. See whether you can spot the difference in these promises. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules keep, and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. Now, can anyone see the difference? Anyone want to speak it or put it in the, the chat? Everyone awake? Anyone awake? Okay, I'm going to give it to you if no one has it. So when we read this passage, we should have, if we know our, the history of Israel, alarm bells should be going off in our head. We've heard this before. In fact, it's very much an echo of the Mosaic Covenant, covenant the covenant that it was given to Moses. Here we, we have in, in Exodus 19, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 3 onwards, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and then tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's giving a covenant to Moses saying, I will be your God. You will be my people and I will make you special. But here we see he puts a condition on it. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments. And what do God's people do straight after this? Straight after when Moses comes down from the mountains, what's happened? The Israelites have built a golden calf and they are worshipping it. Straight away, they disobey God's commandments. And again and again and again, we see that through Israel's history. God rescues them and then promises kind of that they will be his people if they obey his commands, if they they honor him, but they fail. So this is, and you can see that this is this is what we have in in one Kings. We see here, if you walk in my statues 
and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. But zooming out, we see this tension, and I've talked about this last, I think you, maybe two years ago, I think it was, this tension between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant was saying where God has promised Abraham to make his people a great nation and bless the world through them. So the world will be blessed through the people of Abraham. There is no condition on the Abrahamic covenant, but there is a condition on the Mosaic covenant. So how does that work? Here we have no condition on the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promises, and, but a condition on the promises to Solomon. So how does that work? How is David's offspring going to rule forever and bless the whole world is going to be blessed through them, through the Abrahamic covenant? Well, if, obviously, if we know our Bible, we have this lens where we are just waiting for this Davidic king. We are waiting for right back to the Garden of Eden uh, and the Adam and Eve are thrown out and, you know, uh, God says, your offspring will strike the serpent's head. We're waiting for that promised person who will restore Eden, will restore that relationship with God, will bless the world, or the world will be blessed through them. This person is not Solomon. We see the signs right here. We see the signs right in chapter one when he married Pharaoh's daughter and disobeyed God's commandments there. We see his failings. This great temple is raised to give us a symbol of what, what will happen. And we see the perfection within the temple, and this is a, a great kind of symbol of God's presence in his people. And this is back to this chapter here. In John 16, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You see, this temple, this great Solomon's temple was destroyed. And then the next was destroyed. Then the next after that. Three times, at least three times, the temple was destroyed. This temple here in the destruction of Jerusalem, the one that Jesus saw, was destroyed and it has been raised. And this, but Jesus is not talking about a physical temple. He is talking about himself as the final and eternal temple. And that is my final point. And this is who we are looking for through the lens of all of the Old Testament, the, the one who was promised, the one who is the offspring, who will rule forever. This is where we find the ultimate sacrifice made for us once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. That person, the priest, high priest going in once a year to sacrifice for to intercess for all the people of Israel, that is no longer needed. Jesus went in 
and was the sacrifice once for all. The temple was where God dwelt among his people. We know that the real people of God are not a physical race, but a spiritual family. We in IBCBI, in Malaysia, in the UK, in America, all around the world, in Mali, in Nepal. We are spiritual brothers and sisters. We are a spiritual family. And so it should not be surprising that our temple, the place where we meet God, is a spiritual place. Jesus is our temple. We make our sacrifices in Jesus. And we meet God in Jesus. That is where we look. And that is where we come. Not yearly. Not even weekly. We should be coming daily to Jesus. Because that is where we find the promise of having this restored relationship with God. That is where we come to meet God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this uh, description of your great temple in the Old Testament. But Lord, help us to realize that it is just uh, an image, a poor reflection of Jesus, of the one true temple. Lord, help us to look to improve within. And Lord, we pray that you are continuing to purify us within that we can witness to you with love and kindness and gentleness and all of those fruit. Lord, we pray that your spirit is working in us to be a great witness to those around us. For your glory, in Jesus' name's sake. Amen.